Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to Orangewood. My name is Jeff Jakes. I'm the senior pastor here, and we are delighted to have you all here with us. And we are most delighted to have an evening with uh, fellow PCA pastor, Tim Keller. And uh, Tim, we're so glad that you are here. It's awesome to see the way that God builds his church. Each generation, uh, God raises up amazing gifts for the church. And Tim, you've been a gift, a gift to the church of the capital C. And thank you for the way you point us to Jesus. Thank you for pointing us to the gospel that has set us free. And uh, every time I read a Tim Keller book, every time I listen to one of Tim's sermons, uh, and I'm just soaking in the gospel and, and feeling that transformation that comes from what Christ has done for us, you know what I want to yell? My man's on our team, you know? I mean, I'm just so excited that we have him, uh, that we have one who's so missional, uh, one who's so evangelical, uh, one who's reformed, one who's Presbyterian, one who's PCA, and I say, he's, he's on our team, and it just is awesome. And so tonight, I, I think I feel a lot like uh, the way Stacy King felt of the Chicago Bulls back on March 28, 1990. Uh, the Bulls were playing an arch rival, the Cavaliers, and uh, that night, Stacey King and Michael Jordan combined for 70 points to beat the Cavaliers. It was a close game. I think it was like 117-113. Stacey King scored a point. Jordan scored 69, you know. But well, they're on the same team. So, Tim, it's great to have you on the same team. PCA Pastors. Wow. Let me pray for us as we begin our evening. Again, thanks for coming. Let's ask God's blessing on this evening. Oh, Father God, we thank you for the love that you lavish upon us, that we could be called the children of God. And Father, we thank you for our big brother, your only begotten son, Jesus. And through his righteousness and blood, that is what we are. And Father, we thank you for the way you equip your church. And Jesus is head of the church. We thank you for the gifts that you give us. And Tim truly is a gift. And Father, we thank you for the way he points us to Jesus. And Lord, uh, we love him because he's made us know you and love you more. And Father, thank you for the way he's been able to take uh, just the depth of your word, the, the beauty of your word, and, and to present it to us in ways that, that we can understand. And God, thank you that he is on our team. But more importantly, Father, we thank you for who all of, all of who we are are in Christ Jesus. And God, what a joy. So God, we ask because you love us and because we're yours that you would send your spirit into this room. Uh, that Lord, that tonight it wouldn't even be about Tim. That Tim would continue to do what he does best. Point us to Jesus. Uh, Father, we thank you for just this privilege of being together. Come with power through your spirit, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Tim. Can you come up and, and we want to say thank you. Welcome. Thank you, Jeff. See you later. Hi. Uh, yeah, I, I wrote a book. And uh, the occasion for my traveling this week and uh, being here is because I wrote a book. The book is, uh, book is called King's Cross. It's... Uh, it's turning a series of sermons I did on the Gospel of Mark into a book, which gives us the life of Jesus. Now, whenever you write a book, people are always asking, why did you write that particular book? And there's actually a lot of great <clears throat> answers. It's, a, it's an easy question to field. 
A lot of good answers. Uh, the one I want to share with you tonight, though, is this. One of my motivations for a book like that is I'm increasingly concerned. I'm not surprised, but I'm increasingly concerned about the erosion in our culture uh, of popular trust in the Bible. The uh, increasingly, at, at all levels, everything from sitcoms to detective shows, even though it's fiction, and yet you can see the way the Bible and Christians are depicted in them, to, uh, to popular media, to USA Today, to newspaper articles, to the Internet. Uh, increasingly, the, uh, sometimes implicitly, sometimes explicitly, the message is you really can't trust the Bible. It's filled with all sorts of uh, contradictory messages. There's a lot of good stuff in it. There's a lot of crazy, wacky stuff in it. And you can't really trust it. And I don't know quite how you tackle that, and it's very difficult to, uh, to, to arrest a cultural trend. But I, uh, one of the reasons I actually wrote the book, and I, I, one of the reviews said, I already read a review, a, a secular publishing uh, house that said, uh, you know, Tim Keller writes this, this, uh, this version of the life of Jesus based on the Gospel of Mark, and he just sort of takes the biblical account on faith. Which, you know, the, the, and the reviewer said, huh, isn't that something? <laughs> uh, and actually, one of the reasons to write a book like this is to just let people, I'm hoping it'll be picked up by people all over the country, and they'll start to read it and they'll say, wow, the Bible's full of wisdom. Wow, the Bible's really tremendous. I just, and I'm trying to get people to actually begin to say, maybe the Bible's right. Maybe the Bible's r- true. Now, what I don't believe that uh, Christians, and I'm assuming that the majority of you are, uh, are um, you're not immune. We're not immune to this, this, uh, the attitude. It's, it, it, we're bombarded with the attitude. And increasingly, I find Christians as well having a lot of doubts about, well, what do I really have to believe about the Bible? So what I want to do is I want to give you an overview of one of the reasons I wrote the book. But I'm not going to talk about the book, or Mark even, that much. I might, I don't think. I want to give you an overview of what, what Christians have really always believed about the Bible. I'd like to talk to you about the Bible as the word of truth, and I want you to uh, take the next few minutes, and then we're going to have a Q&A, a brief Q&A after I'm done with, this, with, with the talk. I want you to uh, do some assessment of your own heart and your own thinking, because what I'm going to give you is not just my idea or even just a Presbyterian idea, but pretty much the Christian view of the Bible for 20 centuries. Let me just, let, let, let's, let's do it this way. <clears throat> I'm actually going to go to a part of the Bible that uh, is maybe the single, the single it's, well, it is the longest chapter in the Bible, and it's the single best place to get a handle on what the Bible is about. It's Psalm 119. But there's 176 verses in Psalm 119, and you are very lucky that I'm not here to expound Psalm 119. <laughs> but I'm going to read you 10 verses from Psalm 119, and then I'm going to make a series of points about what these things teach us about how we should regard the Bible. That's what I'm here to talk to you about. First of all, let me read it. This is uh, Psalm 119, and these are selections. Verse 1. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Number two, blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their hearts. Three, 
They do nothing wrong, for they walk in his ways. Four, you have laid down your precepts, and they are to be fully obeyed. Verse 11, I have hidden your word in my heart, that I might not sin against you. Verse 14, I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. 45, I will walk about in freedom, for I have sought out your precepts. Verse 130, the unfolding of your words gives light. It gives understanding to the simple. Verse 135, make your face shine on your servant as you teach me your decrees. And verses 151 and 152, you are near, Lord, and all your commands are true. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. First, let's get an overview of what the Bible says about the Bible and what Christians believe about the Bible. Here it is. Those very first four verses, these are all, these are four different descriptions of the Bible in the four verses. And they are called, verse 1, the Bible is called the law of the Lord, verse 2, his statutes, verse 3, his ways, and verse 4, your precepts. Now notice... These are words written by the prophets and the apostles. These are words written by human beings, and yet they're referred to as your statutes, talking to God, your ways, your precepts, your law. So everything, every word that's in the Bible is God's words. In fact, look at verse 1. It says, blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Do you know how often in the Bible, the whole Bible is called the law? of the Lord. Even Jesus does it. In John 15, he quotes a psalm, and he calls it in the, in the law. It says this, and he quotes a psalm. And at first sight, you say, that's kind of weird, because of course we do know the Bible has got laws in it, but it's also got poetry, and it's got narrative, and it's got history, and it's got stories. It's got all kinds of things in it. Why would you call the whole thing law? Why would Jesus call the whole thing law? And begin to realize, you know why? A poet makes his point through poetry. A narrator makes his point through a story. You know, uh, and you can make a point, you can teach something through a poem, you can teach something through a story, you can teach something through, you know, just direct propositions and precepts. But what Jesus is saying, and what this is saying, is that no matter what the genre, everything the Bible teaches, whether through poetry or through narration, or through uh, uh, propositions, must be believed. It must be done. It's, it's law in that sense. See? It's all normative. It's all authoritative. All of it. In fact, you can go down to one, verse 151. Remember what I read? You are near, Lord. All your commands are true. That's called the plenary inspiration of the Bible. In other words, here's all his decrees, here's all his laws, and you're not allowed to say, some of these make sense to me, some of these I like, some of these don't really make sense to me. Some of these I just can't accept. No, it's all. Now, when you see that every one of the words of the Bible is considered God's words, that everything that's said is normative or authoritative, that every part of the Bible is considered God's words, not just some of it. In fact, when you read Psalm 119, and I've done this a couple times recently, it's a long psalm, but one of the things you begin to realize is that all of the attributes of God uh, require that the Bible be 
Absolutely true. Oh, yeah. So, for example, God is a creator. And therefore, verse 4 says, the Bible are those, uh, it calls the Bible his precepts. Now, there's a Hebrew word there that means wisdom, consummate wisdom. And actually, it's a good English word chosen to convey the Hebrew word precepts because it's a lot like our word prescription. And what it's saying is because God created you and he made you and he built you and he designed you, therefore, everything he says in his word is not just arbitrary busy work, it's prescription. You need to obey it. So when your doctor says, take this medicine, or when your doctor says, uh, eat this food or don't eat this food, he's giving you directions. But when the doctor does that, the doctor is not just arbitrarily coming up with rules. What's the doctor doing? The doctor is saying, I know how your body works. And the reason why you have to do this and this and not do this and this is because if you don't, your body's going to break down. And I'm not telling you this because I want to boss you around. When you transgress my directions, you transgress against yourself. When you violate what I'm telling you, you violate yourself because I know how your body works. And of course, if God's the creator and he made you, then whatever he says, all of it is, is prescription. It's consummate wisdom. Secondly, God's king. That's another attribute of God. So everything God says is normative. It's not a suggestion. Uh, thirdly, every, uh, God is holy and righteous. That means everything God says is accurate to reality. Or here's another attribute of God. God is sovereign. That means he's in charge of every little thing that happens. Every circumstance of life. Everything that's ever happened to you is part of his plan. He's sovereign. And what that means is the people that he's chosen to write the scriptures have been prepared perfectly to write every word exactly the way God wants it to be. So the words that person writes are actually God's words. So Second uh, Peter 1, no prophecy ever came about by the prophet's own interpretation. For prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Now, let me, that's my first point. The Bible is God's word of truth. Every attribute of God demands that when he inspires people to write the Bible, it is seen as all truth, nothing but the truth, authoritative truth, consummate wisdom. But do you realize that we're being bombarded in our culture with a very different view of truth? In our culture, truth is considered a subjective inner thing which you discover and then is relative to you. Not an objective outward thing that you submit to and it's true for everybody. Hear that? The culture says sub, it's a subjective inner thing that you discover and then it's relative only to you. It's your truth only. As opposed to the normal idea, which is truth is an outward, objective outward reality which you submit to and then it's true for everybody. And, and it's coming at us in a hundred ways. It's coming at us in a hundred ways every day. My wife gave me an example. I was trying to say, it, it, you can see it everywhere, almost everywhere. The move toward the idea that truth is a subjective inner thing that is just for you. My wife has watched at least three or four times every episode of all seven seasons of Buffy the Vampire Slayer. <laughs> And she, when I was preparing this sermon, she gave me an example. 
that was actually very hard to resist. I tried, but it was very hard to resist. And uh, she says, in the beginning of the series, uh, the traditional way to deal with a vampire was the way that Buffy and company did it. And one of the traditional ways is you get out a cross, get out a silver cross. And then the, and then the vampire goes, you know, and then if, you, if, if you're lucky enough to actually touch him with a cross, very often, you know, he burns and I've done it a hundred times. I hope you have too. Uh, and so why is the cross uh, a powerful uh, way to fight a vampire? The answer, the traditional answer was because it is, it focuses the power of an object of reality on the vampire. It's, it represents a truth, uh, and the, uh, you know, the Jesus, uh, uh, God, and it, and it takes an object of reality and focuses on the vampire. And Kathy says, but around the middle of the, of the series, increasingly, if you wanted to fight a vampire, you didn't need a cross. You needed any kind of religious uh, relic or any, from any religion at all, as long as it would work. And I said to Kathy, you mean the vampires were getting diversity training? Is that you know? <laughs> And she says, no, the explanation was... What made a religious object helpful in fighting a vampire is it's something that you believed in. And if you believed in it, then it helped you focus your inner power against the vampire to fight him. Utter change. Why? Well, of course, because the older approach, even though it's been there for 100 years, the vampire stories, the older approach doesn't fit the culture. The idea that a cross would, you know, and only a cross would destroy a vampire, that's so exclusive. It just doesn't fit. Do you realize how many thousands of ways this is coming through to us? Ah, but look, Eastern religions believe in God, but a kind of impersonal force, right? Hinduism, Buddhism, Eastern religions believe in a God, but they believe in a kind of impersonal force. Just out there, not a person. Western religions, like the Greeks, the Romans, the Norse, the Europeans, always had, they had personal gods, remember, like Zeus and all that, but they weren't perfect, they weren't infinite, they made mistakes, you know, they did st- stupid things. So Western gods were personal but not infinite, and Eastern gods were infinite but not personal. But we, the, those who believe in the Bible, we have a God who's absolutely personal and absolutely infinite. And because he's personal, he talks. Because he's personal, he produces words. But because he's infinite, those words are perfect. They have to be perfect. They're normative. They're authoritative. They can't be, uh, they can't be dismissed. They have objective power. You can't resist them. They should be submitted to. So that's the truth that God gives us. Now, secondly, in these verses, uh, one of the, I'd like to talk about the things that the truth can do for you if you're willing to embrace it. If you're willing to embrace the Bible as God's authoritative, absolute, infallible truth, there are many great things that come to you, according to the Psalm 119. In fact, I would say, as an individual or better, as a group, sometime go through all 176 verses. You just have, all you have to do is put aside a week or two, you know, 24 hours a day. And look at every, everything that that psalm tells you are, uh, that the truth will bring, all the benefits the truth will bring to you if you receive it. But let me just give you three. I actually read them, and let me just three. If you really are willing to accept in this time and place uh, an infallible, authoritative, uh, verbal, propositional, 
body of truth, the Bible, here's three wonderful benefits. It can free you. I'll just name them and then I'll go through them. It can free you to think independently. It can fortify you to act decisively. And can enable you to know God experientially. Okay, first, it can actually free you to think independently. That sounds weird to modern people. Verse 45, I read it. It says, I will walk around in freedom for I have sought out thy precepts. Isn't that kind of crazy for modern people? Because I'm obeying, because I'm submitting to God's precepts, I'm free. And we all say, huh? Wait a minute. <laughs> How could you getting, be getting more free because you're submitting to the word of God? Well, you know this word statutes. Long ago I learned from your statutes that you established them to last forever. That's a Hebrew word that means permanent. Statutes is permanent. And that's, again, a good English word to convey the Hebrew word because it sounds like what? What does statutes sound like? Statue, right? Don't let a statue fall on you. It's very, very heavy. It has, it's lasting. I always say to our artists in New York City, if you want to make sure that, if you, if you want to have a chance that 2,000 years from now people will still be looking at your art, better make statues. I mean, they're still around. <laughs> they last. And the idea behind calling the word of God a statute is that it is not for one time and place. It is permanently relevant. Long ago, I learned from your statutes, you established them to last forever. They're not just for one time and place. They're for all times and all places. Now, I know to some degree in Florida, and I know probably to a slightly greater degree in New York City, people say this. They say, some parts of the Bible I think are wise and good, but there's lots in the Bible that now is we can't accept anymore as contemporary people. There are things in the Bible that are regressive, wrong, in fact, some things that are absolutely offensive. So some parts of the Bible I like and some parts of the Bible I find offensive and I just can't accept. And when people say that, I always respond in two ways. I would say two things. The first is I say, aha, for a moment, let's imagine that maybe the Bible is the word of God. Just, just for, grant this for argument's sake, that the Bible is the word of God. And if the Bible is from God, then it will not be the product of any one culture or century, right? It wouldn't be the product of any one culture or time. And therefore, it would contradict every culture and every time, every cultural moment, somewhere. It would have to. So when you take the Bible to the Middle East and you show them the Bible, they love what the Bible says about family and they love what the Bible says about sex, but they cannot take, because they're an honor and shame culture, they're an honor and shame culture, they can't take what the Bible says about turning the other cheek and forgiving and loving your enemy. That's just nuts to them because it's an honor and shame culture. They like what it says about family and sex, but not about loving your enemy and all that. Ah, Take the Bible into the middle of Manhattan, where I am, and set it down. And they love what it says about loving your enemies and, you know, nonviolence and all that stuff. And when they look at, because they're an individualistic culture, a highly individualistic culture, where my individual consciousness rules, the idea, what the Bible says about sex is crazy to them. Not what it says about enemies, what it says about sex. And so what I always say is, ah, but get this. If the Bible were the truth from God, it would have to offend your cultural sensibilities somewhere. 
And it does. Everybody's. I just show them. It just offends you in different places depending on the culture. And therefore, the fact that you're offended by the Bible is nothing but one piece of evidence that it's true. If, God's, if, if God really had given us truth, you'd have to be offended at some point. So the fact that you're offended and you're saying this can't be the word of truth just shows an inconsistency. It has to be offensive somewhere if it is the word of truth. So go back and look again. It's the first thing I say. The second thing I say is this. Do you know what an incredible resource it is to have an infallible, authoritative Bible to actually think outside the cultural box? Do you know how hard it is to think outside of your time and place? Uh, have you ever seen The Merchant of Venice? Great great play, Shakespeare, great man, and yet no matter how you spin it, anti-Semitic. Basically, uh, you know, it, 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 it traffics in a kind of racial stereotypes that at his time and place, everybody accepted. And he wasn't able to escape. And because he wasn't able to escape, we say, ah, oh, well, he's a great man, but he was a man of his time. He couldn't think outside the box. Do you think you can? You think you are right now? Do you realize, and some of you it's already happened, but you know, 50 or 60, listen, if you're a young person, I'm especially talking to you, 50 or 60 years from now, your great-grandchildren are going to think half of the things that you believe right now and all your friends believe and all the smart people you know believe, your great-grandchildren are going to be embarrassed. <laughs> They'll be embarrassed that you believe those things. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. C.S. Lewis said that, not me. All that is not eternal is eternally out of date. Now, what does that mean? It means that it's almost impossible to think outside your cultural box. It's almost impossible to escape the tyranny of your cultural moment because all the smart people think the same thing, and they're all saying the same stuff. So is there no hope? Yes, there is hope. What if you accepted Though you don't even like parts of what it says, what if you accepted a standard that was already contradicting your cultural moment? That would enable you to think outside the box. Let me give you some examples. One incredibly new idea that nobody ever had was the idea that started developing in the 8th and 9th century in Europe that you should marry somebody you love. You know, that was a new idea. It came from Christianity. There's a lot of a lot of his, there's a lot of historians showing that it came out of the French romantic, the, the French poets, Christian poets of the 8th and 9th century. Secondly, where did the idea of human rights come from? The idea of every human being has inviolable dignity no matter what race, no matter what class, no matter what age. Where did that idea come from? Didn't come from the Greeks. You know, Aristotle said some people are born to be slaves. Aristotle said that. Where did that idea come from? And now there's almost, there's enormous uh, historical evidence and a lot of scholarship saying it basically grew out of the 11th and 12th century, the canonical lawyers, the canon lawyers of the Middle, the, of the middle Ages, re- reflecting on the, the place in the Bible that says every human being is made in the image of God. It was a radical idea. It was a crazy idea. It was a new idea because it came from the Bible. Uh, philanthropy. You know, we, we assume the idea of hospitals and orphanages and places like that. Of course, everybody wants those. They came from Christians. You can look that up. When the Greeks and Romans saw Christians doing that, they said, that's weird. The whole idea of philanthropy, the whole idea of that sort of thing, it's all came from Christians. 
Or I'll give you one more example. I had a friend of mine who's now passed away, but he, years ago he was taking a doctorate in American history at Yale University. And at Yale, uh, he, was, uh, he was sitting one day with a couple of his uh, advisors. Uh, they were luminaries at the time, Sidney Alstrom and Edmund Morgan. Uh, and they were talking about abolition, the, the movement to emancipate the slaves, both in Britain and in America. And they said to him something he told me that I've never forgotten. He said, you know, we, we modern people, most people are chronocentric. We, in other words, we, we think as if our moment is the ultimate moment. Everybody in the past is out of date, but in the future, everybody will always think like we do. The last 5,000 years, we've moved up to the point that now the way we think here in central Florida is the way people will always think for the rest of history. And we're all chronocentric. We all do that. And he says, so we look back and we say, how could those horrible people, how did, what, what idiots, why in the world did they accept slavery? He says, that's not what a historian asks. What a historian wants to know is why, when slavery had been accepted by virtually, in some form, every culture, every society, and every century, as far back as anybody could remember, who ever came up with the crazy idea that maybe it was wrong? Where did that idea ever come from? That's what we want to know. And my friend, who was a Christian, did say, well, all the first people who thought it was wrong got the idea from the Bible. Isn't that right? And they said, yes. I walk about in freedom because I have sought thy precepts. See? If you want to be an independent thinker, if you want to be able to think outside the cultural box, believe in the word of God. Believe the Bible is the word of truth. It can free you to think independently. Secondly, let's get a little bit more... personal. It can also fortify you to act decisively. The word statutes gets across the idea of weight. You can't get rid of it. Uh, In other words, the tides of time do not sweep it away. It's there year after year, century after century. There it is. No matter how you feel, it's objective, it's there, it's a statue, you know, it's strong. If you buy into the culture's idea that truth is something that is a subjective inner thing that you discover in your heart. In fact, you know, that, you know what that idea is? Truth is basically your feelings. If you feel something strong enough, that's truth. You are, if you buy that, you are up a creek without a paddle. First of all, what about the 80% of the time, 80% of the situations in life in which your heart is divided? And it doesn't speak very clearly. Or worse than that, what about the 20% of the time in which your heart speaks clearly, but in hindsight, it was utterly wrong? I mean, recently I have um, read a couple of just painful articles, and I'm glad they're there. I don't know, wh- I don't know why they ran them. A couple of painful articles about, uh, in the New York Times of people who had had extramarital affairs. They were married, and they had affairs. And it blew up their lives, and it blew up their relationship with their children. It blew up everything. And it was just painful. And they look back, and they say, I was swept up, and I wanted this, and it felt right, and I was, it was stupid. It was wrong. What a fool I was. Where do you get the fortitude to know what is right, even when your heart is almost like a hurricane of passion pushing you in this direction? Or when, or when there's a storm around you just of, of, uh, 
uh, you know, a diversity of voices all saying different things, a cacophony of, you know, you can't even get, you can't even figure it out. How do you know what is right? And how do you know enough to act decisively and do the right thing when you're heart is uh, rising up against you and people are telling you all these different things. There is no better example of this than a spot in the novel, that old classic novel, Jane Eyre. When Mr. Rochester is coming after Jane and wants her to live with him and be with him and she has discovered that he's still got a living wife. But she, he comes after her and he begs her to come with him. And this is what, this is what the text says. It's amazing. This is her speaking. While he spoke, my very conscience and reason turned traitors against me and charged me with crime in resisting him. They spoke almost as loud as feeling, capital F. And my feelings clamored wildly, oh, comply, they said. Still indomitable was my reply. I will keep the law given by God. I will hold to the principles received by me when I was sane and not mad as I am now. (laughs) Laws and principles are not for the times when there is no temptation. They are for such moments as this, when body and soul rise in mutiny against their rigor. Stringent are they. Inviolate they shall be. If at my individual convenience I might break them, what would be their worth? Preconceived, foregone determinations are all I had at this hour to stand by. There I plant my foot. I did. She says, there I plant my foot. I did. Do you want to have an anchor? Do you want to have a rock you can tie your ship to? Do you want to have something that you say, I don't feel this is right, I don't know, my heart is is betraying me, people are telling me all these things, but all I know is this is what the word of God says, I'm going to hold on to it. And two years later, and ten years later, and twenty years later, you're not going to look back and say, what a fool. You will not say that. You'll be fortified to act decisively. You'll be free to think independently. And lastly, you will be enabled to know God experientially. Um, Verse 135 is a beautiful verse, especially when you think about what it's saying. It says, make your face shine on your servant and teach me your decrees. What do you get, what are you supposed to get when you learn God's decrees? What are you supposed to get when you're learning his commands? Just knowledge of his commands? No, his face. That's a relational word. The purpose of knowing the word of the Lord is to meet the Lord of the word. The whole, if, if you don't, if you, if you stop at information, you do need to know, you know, You do need to know about Noah's flood. You do need to know about Abraham. and You need to know all those things, but you don't stop there. The purpose is not just to know about the decrees and the commands and and the facts, but to see his face, to know him personally. And I would like to argue that this text is indicating that you actually can't have a warm, intimate, uh, spiritually real love relationship with God Unless you believe in an infallible, an infallible authoritative Bible. And here's why. What I often say to people is, very often people say, oh, I believe in God, I just can't believe everything in the Bible. I say, well, what things don't you like? Well, I don't believe this and this. I, I believe in a God like this, and I can believe this, but I can't believe that. I say, well, let me ask you a question. How can your God 
contradict you? How can your God argue with you? You know, when I have a, when, when I have a relationship with my computer that is as it ought to be, it does what I program it to do. That's what computers are supposed to That's what computers are supposed to do. They don't often do it, but that's what they're supposed to do. You program the computer to do what you want it to do. But when I have a relationship with a person, and I don't just mean my wife, it's also, I mean, obviously that one too, but friends, any personal relationship with a person, not a computer, you fight. <laughs> because the person isn't a computer. The person has its, his or her own will, his or her own ideas his or her own mind and will and heart. And so if you're, in a, if you're in a close personal relationship with somebody and you absolutely never disagree at all, one of you is playing computer and one of you is playing programmer. In other words, you know, one of you is walking all over the other one or one of you is just hiding. So what I say is, you want a personal relationship with God? You must never say, I believe in a God like this, but I can't believe in this part of the Bible, I can believe in this... Dietrich Bonhoeffer at one point says this. If it is I who say where God will be, I will always find there a false God, a God who in some way corresponds to me, who fits my nature, who is agreeable to me. You hear what he's saying? When you say, I can't believe everything in the Bible, what you're doing is you're creating your own God, a God that's agreeable to you. And guess what? It's just just you. No wonder he never talks back to you. It's just you. You got a cardboard God. You got a cartoon God. You got a one dimensional God. You got a computer God. You don't have a personal relationship because you don't have any way for God to, to argue with you or to tell you something you don't want to hear. Sometimes you don't want to hear that you're loved. But if you accept the Bible because it's the Bible, you can hear Him say, I love you. Sometimes you don't want to hear that you're a sinner in a particular way. But if you accept what the Bible says, accept the Bible is the word of God, then you can hear him say things that you don't want to hear. And then you're in a personal relationship. And I don't know how you can, have a, how you can know him experientially and know him personally and have a real God unless you accept an authoritative, infallible scripture. So there's the truth. There's God's truth that he gives us in the word of God. And there are some of the incredible benefits. And that's not all. There's a lot more. If you embrace the truth. Now, do you want those benefits in your life? Do you want to be an independent thinker? Do you want to be a, a, a decisive actor? Do you want to be a, a lover of God, a person who knows him? Then you have to do, you have to treat the Bible in a certain way. So we're not done yet. Here's God's word of truth. Here's the things that the truth can do in your life. Now I'd like to show you how you have to treat the Bible in order to get those benefits in your life. And there's three things that the text tells us that I pulled out. You have to unfold the Bible, you have to hide the Bible in your heart, and you have to rejoice in it as in great riches. All three. Because if you're actually saying, I don't really have a lot of the benefits that you just went through in my life, even though I believe in the Bible, it's not enough to believe in the Bible. You've got to unfold it, you've got to hide it, and you've got to rejoice in it. Here they are. Number one, the unfolding of your word gives light. Now, if something... Here's my notes. They're folded. They are of no benefit to me. Of no benefit. I have to open them up. Uh, If something's folded, you can't really see what's in it. You can't really see what it says. You really can't see it. 
you get some idea from the, the un, its unfolded nature. I mean, it's folded nature, but you have to unfold it to really understand it. What is that saying? We believe, the Christian churches have always believed, that the Bible in its basic teaching is clear enough for a child to understand. But huge parts of the Bible, an awful lot of the Bible, have depths, it has depths to it, many parts of the Bible have depths to them that will only be plumbed if you are very disciplined and very patient. Unfolding means disciplined, patient, sustained reflection, meditation, and thinking. Let me give you an example. Years ago, when I was a fairly new Christian, I went to a camp, Christian camp, and there was a woman there who was trying to teach us how to study the Bible. And at one point, she gave us a, an exercise that actually has changed my life. I wouldn't be here. I wouldn't be a preacher if it wasn't for this. She said, I'm going to give you one verse. And I remember the verse, of course. It was Mark chapter 1, verse 17. Jesus said, follow me, and I will make you to become fishers of men. She said, I want you to take, I want each of you now to take 30 minutes all by yourselves, go find a spot out there, sit under a tree, 30 minutes, and I want you to study that verse for 30 minutes, and not stop studying it for 30 minutes, and I want you to write down 50 things you see in that verse. And she says, you'll find it pretty hard, but I tell you, you must do it, and then come back and we'll share what we got. And it's true, we got out there, and you know, after five minutes, she said, Okay, that's it. I got it. You know, but you had like four things, four things that you think it taught. And then you'd hit a wall, and, but you had to keep on going because, you know, there you were under the tree and there was nothing to do and everybody else was under their tree. So, you know, so you push through and then after you would suddenly see another five or six things and then you were done. That was it. There's no more. Ten minutes. And then you would push through and eventually we got 50 things. And when she brought us back, she said, choose the most life-changing insight you got. Just raise your hand and just share the most life-changing. And so we all shared it, and she put it up on the board. Then she turned around and said, now, exercise. How many of you found your most uh, life-changing insight after five minutes? Raise your hand. No hands. Ten minutes. No hands. Fifteen minutes. A couple of hands. When's the last time you stared at a verse for even 15 minutes? One verse just worked on unfolding it, thinking about it, meditating on it, looking at every word. What does it mean to be a fisher of men? What does it mean to become a fisher of men? What does it mean to say, I will make you? Is that a promise? What does it mean I will make you to become? It's a process. When's the last time you did even that? Just one verse. The unfolding of your word gives light. Do you, do you give it that kind of sustained reflection? These benefits don't come otherwise. Okay, secondly, (laughs) verse 11, which I think is maybe the most important of all. Verse 11 says, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Now, traditionally, that verse is used to say memorize the Bible. But if you think about it, it it doesn't mean less than that, but it means more than that. What does it mean to hide something in your heart? It does mean to unfold it and understand it and memorize it, perhaps. But to hide it in your heart means I'm making it part of me. I'm getting to know it so incredibly well that when I go out there in the world, my mind, is, my mind and my heart are controlled by the vision of life that the Bible gives me. 
this doesn't happen like it should. One day, years, a couple of years ago actually, in the morning I'd studied Deuteronomy in a place in Deuteronomy where God says to the Israelites, be kind to the aliens and immigrants among you. Be kind to the aliens and immigrants and the foreigners among you. For you were aliens in Egypt and I brought you out. Okay, just studying it. Uh, a couple hours later, I was in a, a, a grocery store, in a, a particularly bad grocery store anyway. Um, you know, nevertheless, I was in, a, I was in line, and the, and the line was not moving. I was like sixth or seventh in line. It was not moving, not moving. We were all getting furious. This is way too long. As we got up a little bit closer to the top, I was able to hear what was going on. The cashier was a woman whose English was so bad, she was making all kinds of mistakes and couldn't understand what was going on. And I started saying... My time is important and listen, and she shouldn't have been hired. Why did they hire her? She needs to learn English. And then suddenly the verse came Be kind to the foreigners and immigrants and aliens among you. For you were an alien and I brought you out. And when I got up to the top of the line, I looked at her and I said, Hi. <laughs> Because the word was hidden in my heart. I wish I did that more. I wish I, could, I wish I had a lot more stories like that. I wish I didn't have to go back four years to give you an illustration. <laughs> but do you? Do you? Does it? Think of the fights. Think of the words you say. Think of the attitudes. Think of, think of how different it would be. The unfolding of your word gives light. And secondly, hide it in your heart. The third thing you've got to do, if you're going to have all these benefits, though, is rejoice as in great riches. And this is setting up a problem. It says, um, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. Now, did you hear what he said? Your statutes. These are his decrees, his commands. When C.S. Lewis wrote his book, Reflections on the Psalms, he was kind of shocked by the number of places where it doesn't just say, I delight in your scriptures. or I There's so many places, including this one, it says, I rejoice in your statutes. I see your commands and I love them and they're like honey to my mouth and that sort of thing. And C.S. Lewis says this. He says, I can well understand this being said of God's mercies, but the psalmist is talking about God's law, his commands. This was to me very mysterious. Thou shalt not steal, thou shalt not commit adultery. I can understand that a man can and must respect these statutes. But how could they be delicious? How could they be exhilarating? Some years ago, I heard uh, a great minister preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, and he said something that just so struck me. He said, you know, he says, I don't understand people who say they love the Sermon on the Mount. They say, it's so beautiful. It tells you how we should live and how we should treat each other. It's so beautiful. He says, beautiful? Listen to it. It says, it says, you've heard it said, thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, you should not look at your brother or your neighbor and disdain them or, and call them fool in your heart. Because if you do that, you've killed them. And you've heard it said, thou shalt not commit adultery. But I say to you, if you look at somebody with lust, you've committed adultery. 
And you've heard it said, you must, when you swear in the courtroom, you must tell the truth. But I say, let every single word, let your yes be yes, your no be no. Let every word you, that comes out of your mouth be as honest as if you had sworn in a courtroom on a stack of Bibles. He said, do you see what Jesus Christ is calling us to be and what he's telling us we have to do? And then the minister said, God save us from the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) And that's what Lewis is saying. How in the world can you rejoice in this stuff? How can you rejoice in it? Mark Twain used to have a a nightmare in which he he was laying on his back and this enormous Bible, the size of like a building, was coming down on him and crushing the life out of him and suffocating him. He probably understood the Sermon on the Mount. (laughs) So my question is, and I understand this, studying the Word of God, unfolding it, hiding it in your heart, but it won't won't happen unless you can rejoice in it. And how can you rejoice in it if you understand it? How can you rejoice in it if you understand it and you know how far short you fall? Well, here's the answer, of course. Galatians 3 Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. He redeemed us in order that the blessing might come to us through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. What was Jesus Christ doing on the cross? He was dying, but why was he dying? He was dying for what? To take the punishment. Why? Because of the punishment of what? That big Bible was coming down and crushing him. That thing that Mark Twain felt was on him fell on Jesus. What is that? The curse of the law. The demand of it. And when you see him doing that for you, when you see him taking the full weight of all that the law demand, and we didn't do it, and therefore all that the law demand in terms of punishment that we owe, that debt, he paid it. And then, once you know that you look at the law and it can't condemn you now, Romans 8, 1, there is no more condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. When you look at the law, you don't see condemnation anymore. You see a way to please the one who did that for you. You see a way to resemble the one who did that for you because it's his, his character. You see a way to delight the one and serve the one who did that for you. And now the law is a delight. I look at the law and I say, this is now how Jesus Christ Because I'm in Jesus Christ, this is how God sees me. He sees me as perfect in Christ. He sees me as righteous in Christ. This is what Jesus Christ had to fulfill. And now that he did that, and now I'm perfect in him, in God's eyes, I now can go out there, and this this is my way of finally becoming more like the Savior who did this for me. Now I can rejoice in his riches. And I'll tell you something. Not only is Jesus Christ the key to rejoicing in his riches, in fact, the only way you'll ever do it, but he's also the ultimate example of someone who hid the scripture in his heart. There's 1,800 verses in which Jesus Christ speaks in the Bible. 10% of them are biblical quotes. 180 out of the 1,800. When you cut Jesus, he bled scripture. He completely was saturated with scripture. When the devil came after him three times, what did he say every time? Gagrapatai. It is written. Every time. When he's being assaulted and there's a storm around him, you know, in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they're coming to take him, and, and everybody else is blowing their, you know, they're, they're losing their cool, and Peter pulls out a sword. Jesus says, put away your sword. I could have 12 legions of angels here just like that, but then how would the scripture be fulfilled? 
At a time like that, he's thinking of Scripture. And he's already bleeding, and he's got, he's got the cross on his back, and he's going along, and you know the women come up on the Via Della Rosa, and they're weeping, and he turns and says, don't weep for me, weep for yourselves. And he quotes Hosea to them. And when he's on the cross, what is my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? That's, that's quoting Scripture. It's Psalm 22. Hebrews 10 says about Jesus, when Christ came into the world, he said, I delight to do thy word, O Lord, thy law is in my heart. When somebody comes to me and says, I believe in Jesus, I think, I believe in Jesus, but I can't accept everything in the Bible. What are you doing? What are you doing? The very, the very foundation of his life was the scripture. The very, the very, his power was from the scripture. It's, it was how he got through everything. It was the very foundation and center of his life was the trust in the truth of the scripture. And for you to say, oh, I believe in God. I think I believe in Christianity. I believe in Christ, but I don't believe everything in the Bible. You know, you can say to me, come in, Tim, and stay out, Keller. But I'm going to say, gee, I'm confused. I come together. I'm a package. You can't say, come in Jesus, but not the Jesus that accepts the entire Bible as the living and abiding word of God, the statutes, the decrees, the perfect plenary inspired authoritative word of God. The only Jesus that comes in is a Jesus who built his entire life on the word of God. And because of that, you can rejoice in his riches. And you can hide, your, hide the scripture in your heart. And you can, therefore, have the motivation to unfold it. And then you can know some of the holiness, some of the joy, some of the knowledge of God, some of the power that Jesus Christ had. There's the truth. There's the benefits of the truth. There's what you have to do to get the benefits in your life. And there's the one who will enable you to do it, Jesus Christ. Let me pray briefly, and then we're going to have a, some, some questions and answers here. Our Father, um, we, we're talking about the Scripture, the Word of God, and we, we live actually at a time and a place where there's a tremendous amount of uh, disdain of the Word of God. There's an awful lot of ways in which our culture is, is working against our ability to hold fast to it. In some ways, it's almost easier to believe in the Bible in a pre-Christian culture, oh Lord, where most people don't know what's in it. Uh, we live in a post-Christian culture where so many people look in it and make fun of it and ridicule it. And uh, Father, we pray that you would help us to look at your son, who not only died so that we can rejoice in the law now, but also, also showed us what it's like to live a life that's built completely on uh, the word of God. And therefore, he had a freedom, and therefore, he had a strength, and therefore, he had a knowledge of you. And we want that. So give it to us. It'll glorify you if you do. Give it to us through Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. Okay, so let's do it. Tim has graciously agreed to uh, take some questions uh, for a few moments. If you did not come in through our main foyer here, uh, this is where uh, this latest book, The King's Cross, will be. That's where Tim will be to sign, as well as all of his books that he's written. Uh, all my books are out there as well. You can look for those. Uh, 
But if you would like to ask a question that would be uh, helpful for all of us, uh, we have two mics up front for you to come and, and speak uh, into the mic so we all can hear you. So this will be the time now, so we don't have to wait for you to come. So uh, if you have a question, uh, please make your way to one of our two mics here. You have to come. You can't text me. I'm 60. I don't know how to read. <laughs> okay. Um, my question, because I'm just thinking. I'll repeat it. Everybody. I'm, I'm oh, thinking good. you're saying Jesus um, in terms of the scriptures and that he bled scripture. Yeah. My mind came to in the, wor- in the beginning was a word and the word was God mm. and was with God and the word became flesh right. dwelt among us. He wrote it. I mean, there, I'm, I'm trying to wrestle with there's God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Yes, you're, you're uh, working on the doctrine of the Trinity. Uh-huh. Yeah, because when Jesus, whenever anybody talks about uh, Jesus, you have to remember he had a preexistent mm-hmm. uh, life in the, with the Father. He had a, uh, then he was, he had an earthly ministry, then he was resurrected and brought back up. When he's down here, he stands in our shoes. Mm-hmm. You know, in other words, it was his job to do things that, because he was not only God but a human being, and he, and therefore he has to be our model, and therefore he he emptied himself of his glory, and he depended on the Father. There's a place in uh, a couple places in Acts where it says that he depended on the Holy Spirit to do his miracles. Now you say if he's God, he has his own power, but the answer is, as a human being, being our model, and in a sense being our federal representative. Uh, our second Adam, as it were. He, he relies on the Holy Spirit, even though he didn't have to. He relies on the Word of God, even though, you know, he wrote it. Right. Now, so that, he, that's what I'm... It's, it's just, uh, you just have to... It is, he's both God and man. And exactly. in that sense, I'm talking to him as man and as our model. Thank okay, you. good. Um, I work on a university campus, and um, I hear a lot of students uh, sort of not necessarily coming and saying, I accept a bit of the Bible... And uh, not this part, but like wholeheartedly kind of, um, I, I think it's corrupt, or if I'm talking to a Muslim, like I think it's, I don't believe any of it. So how do you usually sort of speak to somebody like that? Well, now the Muslims would say, <coughs> I, yeah, I don't think, I actually think that most people would say, you, you can show them love thy neighbor as thyself. There's too many places that they would say, well, that's good. Muslims too, they believe it was corrupt, especially they don't believe what, the, the Gospels tell about Jesus. They don't believe he's the Son of God or any of that. Uh, so they, they believe it's corrupted, but there, there is a respect. They call us people of the book. There is some respect. And even the people who say it's all a corrupt, it's all a crock, you say, oh, you know, love your neighbor as yourself, uh, turn the other cheek. Uh, I mean, there's tons of stuff in the Bible that, that I think almost anybody in any culture will accept. In fact, I, I, I was trying to say that Every culture will find some parts of the Bible very, very attractive and some parts very, um, uh, very offensive. When people say the whole thing is a crock, they're really, talk, they're really talking about the church. That's what they're talking They're not talking about the Bible. You, there, there's all sorts of verses you could get out. That you say, so you don't think it's a good idea? And, oh, of course, I think that's good. They're talking about the church. That's what their problem is. And... and uh, uh, they identify the Bible with the church, and they're rejecting the institutional church, I think. Yeah. 
Um, I as well. Um, I go to UCF, and, um, and I'm in the School of Philosophy over there. Um, I've been a believer now for, for a number of years, uh, but one of the debates um, that always goes on amongst the students of philosophy is this element of doubt which exists in Christianity. And, um, and today, actually, after class, um, some friends of mine got into a pretty uh, heated debate, and I wanted to ask your opinion on it. Um, the idea of when Christ says, uh, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Um, the question that I have about this is, was Christ experiencing an element of doubt while on the cross? And the, uh, the friend of mine who was standing on the counter side of me uh, was arguing that, no, Christ was not experiencing doubt. And, and I said I, I felt that he was experiencing doubt, but not doubt of unbelief, just doubt of questioning things. And I wanted to gain your opinion on that. Oh, that's, a good, that's actually a, that's a good question. Um, the, uh, <clears throat> I know it is. Thank you. I See, it depends on probably in, in the, uh, the, a narrower definition of doubt, No. I mean, he knows what's happening. He, he's t- in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's saying to God, please, is there any other way to save these idiots besides this? <laughs> you know, these are the people falling asleep on me and, you know, uh, and betraying me and denying me and all this. And he says, is there any other way? He's just shrinking before it. So in the, in the, uh, when most people talk about doubt, they usually mean in the uh, narrow sense that he wasn't sure there was a God or he felt like if God was there, he'd abandon him. I mean, Jesus knew the, knew the program or he wouldn't have been negotiating, in a sense, with the Father in the Garden of Gethsemane. Uh, but in the, in the broader sense of doubt, feeling abandoned, feeling confused, feeling, yeah, I mean, in fact, um, Bill Lane, who wrote this great commentary on the Gospel of Mark, when he gets to those verses, Bill Lane says, think about it, all of his life, when Jesus prayed, think of his prayer life. God would have been this reality to him. But probably, starting maybe around the Garden of Gethsemane, he turns to God and he prays, and there's just darkness. A vacuum. And it, would have, it was a shock. It was a horrible thing. In that general sense of being shocked and confused and not, not knowing which end was up and all that, yeah, I mean, he, he was experiencing essentially what we experience in hell. So in the broader sense, doubt. But if you're actually saying he stopped believing in God or he felt like there maybe wasn't a God, of course not. In fact, that's what was so bad. God was abandoning him. He didn't say, oh, God, are you there? He said, God, you are abandoning me. And I, you know, and he, but don't forget, he's also quoting an Old Testament figure. And so he's, he's, he's expressing his feelings in the words of a human being who years ago had said, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? So, uh, so I would say, in general, you know, I'm a nice guy. And I would like to say, kind of, he was experiencing, <laughs> he was experiencing doubt, but probably not what some of the folks were, ha- some of those students were thinking, that he was actually losing his faith. I don't think that's true. Okay. Thank you. <clears throat> what do you recommend for? Um those people that their trust in the Bible has eroded, if it's a friend, co-worker, neighbor, you know, show up to your group, show up to your church, you know, ask you that question, where do you take them, where do you walk them through for that? That's great. Uh, listen, pastorally, you have to be, um, there's, there's several ways to go. Sometimes the, the loss of faith, and here we are back to doubt. Sometimes the loss of faith is really an intellectual thing. If you, let's just say the person might have grown up with a fairly naive 
understanding of the Bible and was never given a lot of help in answering the kind. There are problems. I mean, you know, people can suddenly say, look, this verse says this, this verse says this. It looks like a contradiction. There's there's a lot of those like. There's at least a hundred of them which seemed to be apparent contradiction. So if the, if the person had had a kind of um, naive belief, or, by the way, yeah. I'll be careful here, sometimes you grow up with a belief in the Bible and, let's just, uh, let, me, let me give you an example. Let's just say you grew up in a, in a church that absolutely believes in a particular view of the end times. And that, uh, that you know, people are going to be, taken away and then for seven years and this is going to happen then for ten years in other words it's all taught and they they come out and they begin to realize that some of the views that they were taught as uh, kids growing up aren't true but then that makes them question everything so, so there are the, and I would call those real intellectual issues but a lot of people the, the doubts aren't that intellectual and you have to be very careful that they may come from Things going on in their lives. I'll give you. I'll give you a horror, an example. And please listen. Don't do this at home. What I'm about to tell you. Please don't do this. I know this sounds really radical, but I was. Uh, <clears throat> I was talking. I was. Uh, let's just say a, a, a pastor who was probably a little bit more experienced than me and I were talking to a young woman who was in college, and she had been. She was a pastor's kid. And she'd grown up, and she, but she'd lost her faith. She'd lost trust in the Bible. She just couldn't believe in the Bible, and she was coming in and talking to us. And she said, I don't understand why. It just isn't real to me. The whole thing isn't real to me. And he looked at her, and he said, so when did you start sleeping with your boyfriend? And, you know, uh, it worked. <laughs> and I really would say, you must never do that again. I've never done it. But what it turned out, what came out after about an hour was she started to see, yeah, I guess come to think of it, that's when God started to get pretty unreal to me because my conscience was killing me. And, and, and then, I, then what you want to do, there's two things you can do. When your conscience starts to bother you, you either take the thorn out, which is bothering you, or you numb the place where the thorn is. And the, to numb the place where the thorn is, you, you start to argue yourself, say, I don't, it's narrow-minded to consider this wrong. So you have to weaken your understanding of the Bible. And, so, and that's only one example of the complex reasons why people start doubting the Bible. So I, there isn't just a, you know, here's the book to have them read or here's the course. Just be sensitive, okay? There's a lot of, there's a lot of paths to doubting the Bible, okay? A couple ideas. You're the guy, you... That's it? I don't know. Anybody else? Honestly, <laughs> next time I'll do the... T- okay. I'll, I'll bring myself on. Oh, here we go. Um, this is a very broad question, but um, okay. sometimes uh, when engaging, especially um, a non-believer, it's hard for me to know exactly when do you let go of the attempt. I know that you need to pray through it, and I know that um, everybody is different, and some people don't believe because of a personal experience or a personal wrong, and there's lots of possibilities there. But I'm wondering if in general, when do you know just to kind of, do you have any particular uh, I mean, sometimes I just don't know when to, when to stop. I love the person or whatever. Well, well, what issues are you talking with them about? I mean, things in the Bible, like they don't believe things in the Bible? Well, yeah. I mean, just, just general, just non-belief in general, or in particular, just an, there's an atheist I'm engaging that I'm, I'm yeah. trying to get, you know, to sit down to coffee with me. He's kind of agreed to do that. And... Okay, here's two, two different approaches, and you never know. I wrote a book called Reason for God. The Reason for God starts with, with common objections that people have. 
trying to answer them. And there's a kind of person that will not let you talk more positively about what, who Jesus is and what Christianity is about because they, uh, I call them defeater beliefs. So a defeater belief is something that you hold that you feel like because what, I'm, what I believe is true, then Christianity can't be true. So unless you deal with their defeater beliefs, there's no use getting them any, there's, no, there's almost no use positively trying to expound what Christianity is about. And there's some people like that. So, for example, <clears throat> uh, the idea of evil and suffering. Some people have suffered. God let that happen. And because of that, I don't care what you tell me about Christianity. I'm not, and until we get past that, until you help me understand that, I'm just not buying a thing. So there's, there's some people like that. However, this, the, other, the book that's just coming out this week is... is I think the way an awful lot of people find Christianity, you just do an end run around all the objections and you take them right to Jesus and say, hey, how about just put these things aside for now. I'm not saying they're unimportant, but let's just, let's just see who he is and just take a look and see the, uh, the portrait of the man that was so compelling to people in the beginning. And I very often have found with some people when they actually start to read uh, the life of Christ and they see him and they, they start to get attracted to him and they want to believe in him. And that gives them a motivation to go back to their objections and deal with them. Now, some people can't get there because there's... That's what I mean by saying there's so many paths. Some people cannot get to find Jesus attractive because they're so hung up on a couple of things. Other people, you ask them, please come around and let's just take a look at him. And that's the reason why it could be that the right thing to do with your friends is not do my Reason for God book and take them through all the intellectual, philosophical issues and how do we know there's a God, but actually expose them to the life of Jesus and say, what did you think of that? And uh, with a lot of people, it's a better way to go. I mean, not everybody is quite as, I don't know. I mean, I, the, more, the more logical and the more hurt people find it hard to get to Jesus unless you really take seriously their objections. And, but an awful lot of people would be better just to be brought into a text study or a book where you're just reading about Jesus because just, he just breaks the barriers. And, and uh, you know, there's some place where C.S. Lewis says, when you read Jesus and the things he said and the way he acted, you begin to say, nobody could have made this up. Mm-hmm. Nobody could have thought this guy up. And uh, when, you start, when people start to think like that, then then that helps. That doesn't mean that it gets rid of their intellectual issues, but very often they come back with a new motivation to deal with them in a fairly honest way. They don't hide behind them. Yeah, I'm glad you're saying that because we did a book study on the reason for God, and a lot of the objections that came up in the small group were, well, you know, you don't need all this intellectual stuff. You just need the, the spirit, and that's it. But you seem to be kind of saying you read the person, and depending on the kind yes. of person you're dealing with, sometimes you need to respect right. their right. objections and deconstruct those first, right? Right. Right, and it's not that easy to read them. Sometimes you have to go a little ways in and you realize, ah, this isn't the path for the... And then just do a U-turn. Come somewhere else. Okay. okay. I think we have two more. Okay. Maybe three. Okay. Two more. Okay. Earlier in uh, your presentation, you had dichotomized truth. One is being subjective and inner feeling that does it agree with your sentiments or... A, a truth as objective, that which you submit to. Do you believe that there is a degree that truth is relative, and if so, how so, and to what degree? Uh, do, I degree do I believe that truth is to a degree relative? 
relative to what now? Well, the, it, it sounded as though, almost as though, any type of relativity, if truth were to be attached to it, was almost, that is to be shunned. Truth is only that which you can then submit to. In, 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 in one sense, I guess, part of, my, part of my thinking has certainly been tweaked by one of my professors who had a triperspectival, and therefore there was a normative, a situational, a, a um, like historical model, and I'd be interested to know kind of your interaction with that. I'd be fine with that. I'm, I'm, I'm for, I do think what, what I said is, uh, is, is, is a general statement, but <clears throat> look, if, for example, there are some things in the Bible that are obsolete because Christ came along and fulfilled them. So uh, you could say that all the clean laws of the Old Testament, all the, the uh, dietary laws and all that stuff, uh, that, they're, that, that they're gone uh, and they no longer are binding. So there's big parts of the Bible that are no longer binding on us. I would rather say that Christ has fulfilled them so now we're clean in him and therefore he fulfills those laws rather than he's, he's abrogated them. And yet, you'd have to say that those laws were uh, historically relative, right? In other words, history... Uh, changes the way in which we relate to them. So, yeah, I mean, after I say truth is objective and the Bible's objective, mm-hmm. then as soon as you start to say, does that mean that every part of the Bible's, you know, we have relate to every part of the Bible? No, I mean, I have to relate to it through Jesus. And so there is a sense in which it's relative to history and to culture. Also, for example, <clears throat> in the Old Testament, the gleaning laws. Mm-hmm. Let me give you another example, not of uh, truth that is relative to where you stand in redemptive history. Redemptive history is before Christ, after Christ. So sometimes truth is, is affected by where you stand in relationship to Christ. Here's another one. The gleaning laws. Gleaning laws were that if you were a landowner, you could not take all the profits out of your... Um, you couldn't take everything out of your land. You had to leave some of the, the produce in it so that the poor could come and take it for themselves. You weren't allowed to take every bit out, <clears throat> put all the profit in your coffers, and then charity to the poor. You had to actually allow, you, you had to limit your profit taking. Now that's a pre, it, that's an agri, you know, it's an agrarian culture, a pre-urban culture. How do we relate to that now? And that's where the, this idea of normative situational existential works. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't want to explain that to you. Please don't even ask me because I may get it wrong. It, in other words, that you would say in one sense, because we are in an urban culture, we're not farmers, that's no longer true. You know, obviously we can't go out to all the Christian farmers and say, hey, you've got to be doing gleaning because nobody's going to come <clears throat> because we don't have, it's not part of the culture anymore. But isn't there some other way in which we ought to be careful about, not, uh, about limiting our profit taking and making sure that our employees are paid a lot and making sure there's other ways in which we do uh, community service. Yeah, so see, as soon as you back me into a corner, yeah, there's, there's ways in which we could say the truths of the Bible uh, are uh, relative to uh, culture and relative to history, but not in the essence. In other words, how we relate to them, how they come to us, yes. Good. Okay, Thank one you. more. Right. <clears throat> um, yeah, I appreciated your comments just about the, the tension that us as selfish people that the loving of the law that it's talked about in Psalm 119, and that just made me 
think about a pairing of two words that you see in the Old Testament where it talks about the law and it pairs the word covenant and law together. And your comments about uh, one of the verses in Psalm 119 about building that relationship with God. And I was just wanted to find out your thoughts about where you see the words covenant law together and I think especially the, uh, the books of the law and how that kind of relates to, you know, some of the comments you made to Psalm 119. Okay, well, you get, you get, <clears throat> you get the uh, prize for the, the question that could produce the longest answer, but it won't be. It won't. <laughs> it won't. You could get the prize, but you won't. Oh, what, what, the, the reason it's a very fruitful, que- a, a fruitful question, um, if I'm smart enough to answer it right, um, is in the Bible, the word covenant is a very rich word, and I'll give you a definition <clears throat> that I like to use. A covenant relationship, when people are in a covenant, there's a vow, you know, there's an oath, there are rules, uh, there are st- with stipulations, which is what the law is, because the law, a covenant law means these are the rules that govern the relationship. You agree to do this, you agree to do this, you know, God says I'll do this, you, human, you servants of God do this. So the covenant has got vows, it's got commands, it's got law, and yet it's all about a relationship. The whole purpose of the law is, is to have the relationship. So I like to say what's beautiful about covenant is, covenant is something that actually, again, in our culture we don't really understand. It, it is, on the one hand, covenant is a a relationship far more intimate than a mere emotional bond and far more binding and pardon me far more binding than a mere emotional relationship and far more um, intimate than a mere contractual relationship you understand in other words uh, a covenant relationship was not just a business relationship right now you sign a contract okay i do this you do that this is a relationship that is far more uh, Say it again to make sure because I got it wrong the first time. It is far more intimate than a contractual relationship, far more binding than a mere emotional relationship. And therefore, it's, a, it's an incredible blend of law and love. We actually say, think of how marriage should work. You should be more intimate and more vulnerable because it's legal. Because you've got a little more certainty that the person's not going to walk the first time you have an argument. In other words, the law makes it possible to be more vulnerable. And uh, that's one of the very few places where you see that in our culture. In our culture, you either have an emotional relationship in which I'm free to go if, when it no longer fulfills me, or you have contractual relationships, but the covenant in the Bible was this wonderful blend of law and love and showed that in the end, the law uh, is, is supposed to be so that we have a relationship with God that we want. And it's, so it's a, it's, a, it's a very, very fruitful word for understanding law in a non-legalistic way. Okay, I'm going to turn it back over to Thank you, thank you, thank you. Thanks again. Um, It happens every Sunday. Uh, Let me close this in prayer. And then I'm going to walk uh, Tim out here. He'll be available for book signing. Uh, Again, thank you so much for coming out. Let's close the evening in prayer. Father God, thank you that you, triune God, are the wonderful counselor. Thank you that you are mighty God. Thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. And Father, we thank you that you raise up servants and sons like Tim uh, that unfold in such an amazingly rich way your word for us to hide them in our heart. 
to rejoice over them and treasure them and to live a life pleasing to you. We'll never fully be ourselves until we are fully following hard after your son and the freedom he offers us in the gospel. Thank you for tonight. And Father, may we be not just hearers of your word, may we be doers of your word, especially to a world that desperately needs to know Jesus as Savior. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. God bless and you're dismissed.